Thanks to the wonderful folks at Anchor.fm. Welcome, listeners, to Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from past audiobooks and other spoken word projects. You writers may also be given the chance to have your newly written material, fiction or nonfiction, read to an audience. This show will get the words out. And now, here's the host of Tom Reads Your Story, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. Thank you, Mr. Announcer, for that lovely introduction. Welcome, you voice actors, writers of all kinds, and audiobook listeners. We are celebrating the spoken word, and this is Tom Reads Your Story. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. So, today, what we have is, well, the usual thing. A couple of ads, maybe a, a piece of a book, that type of thing. That's the show. What makes the show different, remember this, is when you send in your written material, your article, your piece of poetry, or maybe a piece of your novel, that I can perform for you. And I would love for you to do that. What you need to do is email me at TomReadYourStory, all one word, at Yahoo.com. TomReadYourStory at Yahoo.com. I'll take a look at it. And, you know, what can I tell you? Chances are I'm going to want to do it, unless it's something totally ridiculous, like uh, what size shoes you need to buy at Target or something like that. But just go ahead and and send your written material to me to that address, and we'll see if we can get something started. Okay. Uh, So we have a few ads today, one for RCA. These are auditions, by the way. One for RCA and one, uh, let's see, for orthotics. Have you ever used orthotics? I've used orthotics many times throughout different times of my life. Uh, And I think it's because I have one leg shorter than the other. But, you know, it's not the kind of thing to talk about. So anyway, so uh, this uh, will be first an ad for RCA. And then I will be right back. Finding out what's on TV can be an eternity. That's why we have RCA TVs with Guide Plus Gold, the TV programming guide you control. Use the remote to browse at your own pace. Hit sort to list movies and sports by theme. In the mood to laugh? Click on comedy. Cry? Click on drama. Cheer, click football. And to tape, just highlight the program and hit the one-touch record button on your remote. RCA. Changing entertainment again. And of course, before that stinger you just heard, uh, that was an ad for RCA. So, a few days ago, I found a very nice article about one of America's most celebrated actors, legendary, I would possibly say, Sidney Poitier, and his starting out, his struggles uh, in New York, uh, living in Harlem. He was a dishwasher. This is all about 
his uh, humble beginnings. And um, I think you're going to really like this. A Posting in Facebook by Alistair Hunter Sidney Poitier was a 20-year-old dishwasher in New York City. He came from the Bahamas and could only read third-grade level, having great trouble with three-syllable words. He lost his dishwashing job, so he looked in the want ads and was about to throw the newspaper into the trash box on the street when he read, Actors Wanted. The wanted seemed like an invitation, so he walked to the address, was given a two-page scene to read by a large man. Poitier slowly read word by word in his Caribbean accent. The large man grabbed him by the belt and collar and pushed him into the door, saying, Stop wasting people's time. You can't speak and you can't read. Go back to dishwashing. Walking to the bus stop, Poitier stopped on the street thinking, How did he know I was a dishwasher? Poitier said, I realized that was his perception of me. No value, but something I could do with my hands. Even though he was correct in his anger to characterize me that way, I was deeply offended. I said to myself, I have to rectify that. I decided right then on that street that I was going to be an actor just to show him he was wrong about me. I had to take the responsibility to change how people perceived me. I continued as a dishwasher, where an elderly Jewish waiter taught me to read, persisting over many months. Poitier auditioned at the American Negro Theater in Harlem, hoping to get into classes there. He didn't know that one could buy books with plays in them, so he memorized an article in the True Confessions magazine. He wasn't accepted, but Sidney said, I'll be your janitor for free if you let me study here. The school accepted that deal. Months later, he was told he had no gift for acting and had to leave. Unknown to Poitier, three fellow students that liked him went to the headmaster and asked her to give him a walk-on in the next play. She said, No, but... I'll make him the understudy for the lead. She had no intention to use him. However, the night of the play, the lead, Harry Belafonte, had to help his janitor father carry out the six heavy boxes of furnace ashes, and it had to be done that night. So Poitier went on, knew his lines, and did the best he could. In the theater that night was a producer that offered him a bit part in his next play, his character was the first to speak as an excited man who has to tell some news in the first scene, and that was all. Poitier said, When I looked out through a peephole at the twelve hundred people waiting for the play to begin, I became paralyzed with fear. I ran out on stage and started with my seventh line first. The other actor's eyes bulged out, but he came up with the right answer. We skipped around lines, then my character left the stage, and that was my only scene. The audience didn't know the play, so they liked my confused, excited character. 
However, walking back to the room I was renting, I decided to give up on acting. I bought four newspapers on the way home and was surprised that I was mentioned favorably in three of them, like, who was that funny kid that came on at the beginning? So I decided to continue acting. After a few small parts in small movies, it was 1954. Sidney Poitier was sent to an audition for a movie by an agent named Martin Baum, but was not Poitier's agent. Poitier read a scene in front of the producers. They wanted him and gave him a full script to take home. Poitier's character was a janitor who saw a crime committed by gangsters. To keep him quiet, the gangsters kill his daughter, and he stays quiet. Poitier said, I really hated it. At the time, I had no objections to playing a janitor, but I hated the idea of a father not taking action on the gangsters. The janitor permits what the gangsters do to him. To the writers, it's just a plot point, but I can't play that because I have a father, and I know my father would never be like that. And as a father myself, I would never be able to not attack those gangsters. I want to do movies that show who I am as a human being. My father was never a man of self-pity. He had a wonderful sense of himself. So, every time I took a part, from the first part, from the first day, I always said to myself, this must reflect well on his name. Poitier called Martin Baum who said they will pay $750 for the part, $7,000 today. He told Baum, I read it, and I can't play it, and explained why. Baum said, That's why you don't want to do this? You need that money, don't you? Poitier desperately needed the money. He had to pay the hospital $75 for his second daughter's birth, but didn't take the part. Poitier said, That speaks to who I was then and still am. And who I am is my father's son. I saw how he treated my mother and family. I know how to be a decent human being, so I pawned my furniture, such as it was, got $75 and paid the hospital. Then I went back to dishwashing. Months later, Martin Baum called me and invited me to his office and said, I have never been able to understand why you turned down that job. I told him why again, but I don't know if he understood it. But Martin said, I have decided that anyone as crazy as you are, I want to be their agent. He's been my agent till now. Poitier won an Academy Award for Best Actor for Lilies of the Field in 1963. Five years later, Sidney Poitier was offered the lead in In the Heat of the Night to be produced by Walter Marish. Poitier said, When I read the script, I said, Walter, I can't play this. The scene requires me to be slapped by a wealthy man, and I just look at him fiercely and walk away. That is not very bright in today's culture. It's dumb. This is 1968. You can't do that. The black community will look at that and be appalled, because the human response would be different. You certainly won't do the movie with me this way. If I do this movie, I insist to respond as a human being. He pops me and I pop him right back. 
If you want me to play it, you will put that in writing. Also in writing, you will say, if this picture plays in the South, that scene is never removed. Walter said, yeah, I promise you that and I'll put it in writing. But being the kind of guy Walter is, his handshake and his word are the same, so I didn't need to have it in writing. And he kept his word. That scene made the movie. Without it, the movie wouldn't have been as popular. In the Heat of the Night won five Academy Awards. Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Editing, Best Sound, Best Actor Rod Steiger. In the Heat of the Night won five Academy Awards. Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Editing, Best Sound, Best Actor Rod Steiger. Okay, and I, I asked this before, but have you ever used orthotics? I know I have. Anyway, so if you have, then you may have seen the episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is a show I love. And it's where Larry David has to wear the orthotics and makes noise all through the, all through the episode. Very, very funny stuff. I hope you get to see it. Here's an ad that I auditioned for about orthotics. Back, leg, and hip pain? It could be your feet. Introducing Profoot Good Posture, a revolutionary way to reduce pain by stabilizing your foundation. Profoot Good Posture, the design that aligns. Aches and pains. You try everything for relief, but maybe it starts with your feet. Better alignment could mean less pain. Introducing Profoot Good Posture Orthotic, the design that aligns. Sidney Poitier, so many great movies. Now, we, um, we want to play, or I, excuse me. I'm saying we because I'm, I want to speak like I have a big staff here. <laughs> but uh, what I want to play now is a section, a little snippet from a terrific short story by a great writer that I've already talked about on, on the, sh the uh, podcast, on the show here. And um, that's Steve Vernon. Steve Vernon, I did several uh, books for. Great writer. This is an, another of his great stories, short stories. This is called Cat Call. And I can't help but say it really reminds me a lot of Stand By Me. And maybe he would agree, maybe he wouldn't. But I have to say it anyway. It reminds me of Stand By Me. It's got friends in it who are after something. In this case, uh, an old mansion with a very kind of spooked out cat. Okay. This is Cat Call. Nobody really knew how long the old funnel mansion had stood empty. Waiting up there high on Carpenter's Hill, like a child's forgotten lunchbox, any more than anybody knew just how long that old gray cat had squatted in behind the screen of the front porch window. All we knew was somebody must be feeding it, because every now and then we would look in from the hedge on the far side of the yard and see the cat nibbling daintily on what looked to be raw hamburger. Guts, proclaimed Jeremy Hooter, 
making a thick, juicy, swizzling noise with his lips and tongue pressed against his stainless steel braces. "'It's guts, is what it is. "'Great big gobs of all guts,' amplified Charlie Roundbert. Charlie Roundbert was only half of Jeremy's size and age, but he might as well have been Jeremy's shadow. The two boys stuck together just that closely, and yet, as far as I knew, the two of them never had anything nice to say to each other. Owl guts, Charlie repeated. We all took up the chant except Jeremy, who didn't think it was funny at all. Owl guts, owl guts, owl guts. Owl was what we always called Jeremy, because of his last name. It didn't help that Jeremy wore a pair of glasses that made Coke bottle bottoms look like microscope slides. The glasses always reminded me of Dr. Cyclops. You know the guy from the movies? It always looked to me like Jeremy was staring at us through a microscope, like we were some kind of alien bacteria from Planet X. I had a microscope given to me on my 10th birthday. Not one of those little bitty plastic toys they sell with the chemistry sets you order from the Christmas catalog, but a big old-fashioned kind that my dad found in a basement he'd been paid to empty. The basement had belonged to old Doc Hawkomer, and when the doctor saw the microscope, he told my dad to go ahead and take it. He had a new one he used anyways. My dad always said that the microscope was probably contaminated with all kinds of plagues and diseases, and he was likely being ten kinds of an idiot giving it to a kid like me. I told my dad not to worry. Germs didn't stick to dead things like microscopes and houses. Germs stuck to people. Germs needed meat to feed on, and he probably shouldn't worry so much. I knew he wasn't being all that serious anyways. He was my dad, and the only person I had in this world, next to my dog Riley. The only difference was, Dad was real. Riley had been real, but he was imaginary now, since the timber truck ran over him. I knew my dad liked to worry about me, like it was his hobby or something, and I loved him for this worry imaginary or not. I got Riley from my mom when I was two. Riley was a big black Labrador retriever with feet as big as snowshoes in the pictures we have of him. We don't have too many pictures of mom because it was my mom's camera and dad never felt that comfortable using it. He's got his own camera now and he uses it whenever he can. Riley was my dog and he would play fetch with me with a worn-out baseball from the time the sun got up in the morning until the time it crawled back into bed. He was killed when I was eight years old because of a ball I had misthrown. The ball bounced out into the roadway, and Riley followed the lure of the ball like a trout following a wriggling worm. The truck rolled over him before I even had a chance to scream. I got Riley when I was two, and my mom died when I was three, and Riley died when I was eight. And I can still remember how I used to stare into his big black jujube eyes and see my mother smiling out from inside those eyes. I loved Riley better than I loved spaghetti, and I love spaghetti a lot. Dad said I got my spaghetti-eating habit from my mom, back before the accident back when Mom was alive and she loved eating spaghetti more than anything. I can still remember seeing her with two long strands of spaghetti hanging from out of her mouth like a Fu Manchu sort of mustache until she sucked them right back up 
giggling all the way with a big, loud, slooping sound. It was the only memory I had kept of her. My mom died when I was awfully young. A car wreck, Dad told me. It was a rainy October night, and the car wheels couldn't hold to the road, and there was a sudden blast of lightning like somebody jumped out and said boo, and then Dad lost control of the wheel, and they slid up against that big old beech tree down at the foot of Carpenter's Hill. Dad had remembered to buckle up, so he only twisted his back and broke his face against the dashboard. But Mom forgot to buckle up. So she went spilling right through the window glass and into the tree. And Dad told me once one late night that he still saw the color of her blood in the leaves of that tree every autumn. My dad walks with a limp because of that crash, and his left eye has a strange tilt to it from where his face was broken. His face sort of looks as if he is always getting ready to cry, and every October he carries a bouquet of quiet red roses up the side of Carpenter's Hill to the town cemetery where my mom is sleeping. Jeremy, who was older than I am, told me once that he had watched from the bushes as the police ambulance medics scraped my mom off of the trunk of the tree like she was so much hamburger meat. I told him he was a liar. I said that there was no way that would happen, that you just couldn't make a person into hamburger meat. We got into a fight over that, and he probably would have beaten me up, but I think he felt bad for what he said to me. Jeremy had said to me that some of the pieces of my mom had been so small that the police had needed a microscope to find them. I liked my microscope a lot. In the summer, I liked to mix swamp water and hay in a big mason jar and let it sit and steep out back behind the old garage where the sun always shines until my dad would say something to me about that unholy stink and I would take the water and make as many slides as I could and would dump the rest of it out back in the ditch. The ditch always smelled like swamp water, although I blamed the smell on Jeremy because he liked to pee in the ditch whenever he came over to visit. The slides were always different. I liked to see paramecium and amoeba and all kinds of other things that I didn't know the names of. I asked my dad once where they'd all come from and how they got into the water. He said some of them were probably in the swamp water to begin with, and some of them were in the hay. Only the ones in the hay were sleeping, like seeds waiting to be rained on and hatched. Dormant, he called it, like they were waiting behind some kind of door. I also liked to look at the hydro plants that I found under the lily pads of the swamp behind the school. I would wade out into the swamp in my big rubber boots that used to be Dad's until they started to leak. One day I got caught in the mud and nearly sucked under, and my friends had to run for my dad. Dad waded out to get me. And then for a while, I thought he was going to get stuck too. And then I had this crazy picture in my mind of the whole town being out here, stuck in the muck, waiting for the frogs and the leeches and the mosquitoes to suck us all dry. Only Mr. Thornton came along with a big old rope and pulled the two of us out of there before the leeches, frogs, and mosquitoes had a decent chance to get us. After that, my dad told me to stay away from that swamp. He told me that three winters before I was born, two ice skaters went down through the ice and didn't come back up. My dad believed that because of the swamp had developed a taste for people, and it was just waiting for its next meal to come along, like some kind of giant Venus flytrap. 
Jeremy had a Venus flytrap plant that his mother bought at a county fair. In the summer, it was too hot to do much of anything else. We used to watch it take flies, luring them in slowly and then snapping them up like good old Godzilla. I wanted a plant just like it for the longest time, but my dad wouldn't buy one because he said we didn't need it. My dad was the town's champion fly swatter. He took pride in the fact that he could snag a house fly with his bare hands. You've got to watch for that hand-washing motion that flies make, he told me one too many times. When they make that hand-washing motion, you know that they are too busy thinking about washing their hands to think about jumping into flight, so you can grab them because they aren't really looking for it. And that was, of course, Cat Call. Steve Vernon. Check his books out at audible.com. And that should do it for this episode. If you enjoyed hearing from the books I read today, make sure to visit audible.com for more books and short stories that I, as well as many other voice actors, have narrated. Be sure to email me at tomreadyourstory at yahoo.com to send in your written material for me to perform, or if you have specific questions about getting into the voiceover biz, Uh, As always, thanks to Anchor.fm for this wonderful chance at having a continuing podcast. I very much appreciate it. Hope you decide to come back soon. Have a great rest of your day and take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, audiobook, or video project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tom Reads Your Story.